Padraig O'Malley is an Irish peacemaker, author and professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, who specializes in the problems of divided societies such as South Africa, Iraq and Northern Ireland. And he has written extensively on these subjects and has been actively involved in promoting dialogue among representatives of different factions. I think looking at Padraig and the role he has played, we come to an irony in history. The backroom players never get acknowledged, and yet they, they remain the essential part of the solution. People who are in the Foreign Service, people who are in the UN, oh my God, you know, they can't do what Porik does. That's the, why there are the Poriks of the world. Porik's goal was to get them in the same room to listen to the South Africans, and he accomplished that goal, and it hadn't been done before. There are many of us who know him who haven't really figured out what motivates him. And when you try to take the conversation in that direction, it sort of runs out. It, it, it doesn't get very far. Uh, my name is Porik. I'm an alcoholic. I'm often concerned about the, uh, the quality of my uh, sobriety. Around this table, we are brothers and sisters in a family that has experienced distress, trauma, dispossession. The Peacemaker is an intimate portrait of international peacemaker Patrick O'Malley, who helps make peace for others but struggles to find peace for himself. The film takes us from Padraig's isolated life in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to some of the most dangerous crisis zones on Earth, from Northern Ireland to Kosovo, Nigeria to Iraq, as he works a peacemaking model based on his recovery from addiction. We meet Padraig in the third act of his life in a race against time to find some kind of salvation for both the world and himself. The Peacemaker screens on Saturday, May 18th at 6.30pm at Beechwood Funeral Cemetery and Cremation Services at 280 Beechwood Avenue in Ottawa. And you can get full details for that if you visit the Irish Film Festival of Ottawa on Facebook or on their website. And it'll carry a link over to Eventbrite where you can get tickets. I must apologize in advance for the quality of the audio that we're about to hear. Unfortunately, the line that I had with Podrick was not a great line. And uh, at times it faded and was difficult to catch. But the content is certainly very, very interesting. Podrick, thanks a million for coming along for a chat. Delighted to have you here. And in the intro, I pointed out how you have spent... You're in, what you say, the final third of your life and you want to devote it to peacemaking and um, making life more meaningful for yourself. But one of the questions I want to ask is, that you said that the peace efforts that you have engaged in, you base them on a recovery program, your recovery program. How do you bring the principles of a 12-step program to the global stage for peacemaking? It's a uh not that we bring the principles of the 12-step program itself. It's that um, 
in my own work and research, and I have come to regard con conflict, particularly intractable conflicts, as an addiction. And um, the principle, the, the, the mechanisms of AA, uh, not the 12 steps, but the mechanisms of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, is that um, alcoholics share uh, their narratives, share their, their stories of, um, of alcoholism with other alcoholics. And they're able to identify with each other about their experiences and experiences of addiction and what people with addiction go through are, in essence, more or less the same. So through that process of identification, they're able to bond and help each other and trust each other. And trust is very important. In the same way, um, divided societies have found that in divided societies, that one divided society is in, the, is in the best position to help another because these divided societies share common characteristics. Uh, for example, in, the, in 1997, uh, with um, the help of President Mandela and his support, um, I was able to organize bringing the main negotiators from all the parties in Northern Ireland to South Africa, where they met, of course, with President Mandela, and more importantly, they met over three to four days with the, the chief negotiators from all the parties, from the right to the left, and in between, who had put together the, the settlement that ended apartheid in 1993. And, and the Northern Irish were able to bond with the South Africans, and the South Africans were able to um, discuss Northern Ireland's problems and discuss the, uh, the, the jams that were preventing the process from moving forward and able to tell um, the Northern Irish uh, how, how South Africans had dealt with similar types of problems. And to that end, successfully getting those who distrust each other from the beginning, particularly um, going from the north of Ireland to South Africa, that uh, you have such cultural differences on every side, but in Northern Ireland itself, that there mm -hmm. are there is the distrust and that there would have been such um, a lack of awareness in many ways and understanding of the South African position. To successfully pull all these people into one room and find common ground, um, remarkable. Um, you know, it is more remarkable as subsequently um, I was able to use teams of negotiators from Northern Ireland and South Africa, uh, including Martin McGuinness um, on the 
Northern Ireland side and the current president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, on the South African side, and to work with the diverse entities in Iraq, with Shia, with Sunni, with Kurds, and with Turkmen. Um, because the, the, the way in, because in, in, in the end, in all these societies, the kind of blockages there are to enabling people to relate to each other um, are all the same. Cultural side. They're all behavioral characteristics. They're not cultural characteristics. So, would this then be why truth and reconciliation is so critical to the process? Truth and reconciliation is a a different kettle of fish. Uh, Truth and reconciliation is something that um, comes um, uh, post-conflict. And and in, in, in South Africa, of course, you had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which dealt in dealt in a uh, dealt in a certain way, I'd say. Um, but but it would be very difficult, but we need to move forward in any way that allows the society to heal, uh, unless the truth about the past is fully explored. And it has not yet reached that stage. And may not reach it for another couple of decades. Um, the past is still very raw in, 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 in Northern Ireland. And of course, the various parties have vested interests in the truth not being, being discovered. The British government, for sure, uh, would not allow open its books to see to what extent uh, MI5 and N16 and other security agencies were involved in uh, extrajudicial activities with the Protestant paramilitary organizations. And um, Sinn Féin and the IRA, I don't think, are too keen in having explored the degree to which the, the IRA of the Sinn Féin itself was uh, infiltrated by the British government infiltrations that kind of went to the highest level. So, um, there's no there's no public outcry for the truth. And, of course, this has its own problems in trying to reset the devolved government. So, Padre, a few years ago, and I wonder how the relevance of this is, I had um, a discussion with Paddy Cooney, who had been the Minister of Justice in the south of Ireland, and also with John Bruton, at a conference mm-hmm. on uh, the Irish Civil War. And both made the point that at the time of the conference, which was relatively recent, it was actually possible to discuss some of what happened in the Irish Civil War because it was far enough back people who were involved were no longer living. Does something like that become an issue or make it more difficult to achieve a a, a forum where people are willing or able 
to get around the table and move forward? Certainly, dealing with the past, um, maybe dealing fully with the past, um, maybe easier to do um, with a generation that has not actually been part of that past. So I suppose my broad answer to you, Austin, is, is yes, um, with the passage of time uh, and the opening of archives, um, it becomes more possible to explore what went on in the past. Uh, most governments have some kind of statutes on um, classified information, and um, it's in these classified information archives that a lot about the, or about the truth of the past would be concealed. But that doesn't solve the problems of today. That doesn't solve the problem in uh, the Golan Heights, or nor does it pro- solve the problem in a variety of other areas around the world where there's conflict on a daily basis. So, um, in often cases, how were you able to... Um, become a catalyst or act as a catalyst in situations that were still powder kegs? It's not that I was a catalyst, um, Austin. It's that um, I visit protagonists in conflicts often enough that I am able to establish a certain level of trust and able able to convey a certain degree of empathy. And in the end, I'm really asking parties in a conflict to take a small gamble, small risk. I'm not asking them to solve the problems. I'm basically trying to get them to the point of where they will talk to each other. Now, in Northern Ireland, getting people to talk to each other was quite an extraordinary process because even though we are now celebrating and remembering the 21st anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, it is well to recall that at that time, that those negotiations took place without there ever being a direct interaction or a face-to-face interaction between David Trimble's Ulster Unionist parties and Sinn Féin. And when the parties were putting strand two together, that's the, the relationship between Northern Ireland and the Republic, Things got so hostile and suspicion so great that in the end there was a British government acting as an intermediary between the two that was the agent that allowed them to work out some kind of an agreement. The Democratic Unionist Party, the largest party in Northern Ireland today, um, wasn't even a party to the agreement. 
So even though you had talks that went from 1996 through 1998, you never had a situation where all the parties were collectively talking to each other. And what I try to do is I try to get parties simply to talk to each other. And invariably you have a situation where there is one armed group regarded as a terrorist group by government forces. And they insist they will never talk to men of violence, they will never talk to terrorists. And of course, I think can't think of a situation where in fact they didn't talk to men of violence. The process in Northern Ireland could never have worked unless until Sinn Féin was brought in the court. That is, talk to While you may, the getting the men of violence to come to the table, as you said, the situation often is that there is what is perceived or categorized or said to be in a way um, the establishment um, would be looked upon as one of the violent parties by often what are the um, rebels and getting the establishment to come to the table while the rebels are at the table again I can see as being a tremendous challenge Yes, and of course, um, to, you know, if we're looking again at the case of the British, you know, the British were talking to, we should recall, the William Whitelaw, the first Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, through Sherry Adams uh, and Martin McGuinness to... To, to England uh, to meet with him in 1972. Um, and they were back channeled all the time to the IRA. Uh, Brendan Duddy, uh, who was codenamed the Mountain Climber, was the go-between during the, during the hunger strikes. And from the 90, early 1990s, there were back channels to the IRA. So what governments say in public and what happens um, in back channels are two entirely different things. But it wasn't until Tony Blair opened the gate gateway to Martin McGuinness and Gary Adams uh, when he became Prime Minister um, that there was a formal acknowledgement as part of the British that in order for there to be any kind of settlement in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin would have to be part of that process. The movie, it says, um, we meet you in act, uh, the third act of your life, and it's a race against time uh, to find some well, salvation. I didn't, say, I, I didn't say it was the third act of my life. This is, now what, this is what... Th- <laughs> I, was, I was curious about act one and act two. Yeah, good for you. Um, but, <laughs> um. Your background, your upbringing, that brought you to... Uh, this critical role? Uh, the, the, the most honest answer to that is that it happened um, almost by, by chance. Um, had it not been for a bloody Sunday, um, 
I would not have become involved in, in Northern Ireland. But the irony is, is that I grew up in Dublin. Um, I had a very good job in, in the Irish Civil Service. Um, and had I stayed in Ireland, I would have been ended up like many of my peers, probably as a deputy or assistant or maybe even secretary of the department of which I worked. I would not have been involved in Northern Ireland. Because the act of having come to America, ironically, that allowed that to happen. And that happened because of Bloody Sunday. Um, I and some others uh, organized a, a concert for the families of the victims here in, in Boston. Uh, and it was... It was uh, pre-social media, our social media were all the bars in the area and uh, we were able to raise $14,000 that was $1,000 for each of the families and delivered that personally to the families in, 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 in Derry and uh, that was my first time in Northern Ireland and that changed uh, and that changed the course of my career from that point on, uh, my story became more involved in, in looking at and trying to understand the conflict there. And um, that led to, as you see in the documentary, the Amherst Forum um, in 1974-5, uh, where we brought our, uh, many of the parties in Northern Ireland together, I believe, for the first time. So it was not something I set out to do. It was something that uh, the twists and fates of, of, of life just um, just made it happen. I have always felt, and if perhaps you can give me a comment on this, if each side in a conflict were to acknowledge the legitimacy of the other side's point of view. Not necessarily agree with it, but just acknowledge the legitimacy of it. Do you think that that would help in a lot of situations that we see around the world? Of course. I mean, if you get to the point of being able to acknowledge the legitimacy of the other person's position, and your um, you're on your way towards being able to reach a, a settlement. Right. So, um, uh, recognizing the legitimacy of the other person's position um, is, is, is a precursor uh, to being able to engage in a productive peace process. Yes. And finally, the, to wrap up, while it's um, not dealing directly with the movie, given the fragility of so many situations around the world and the fragility of the situation in the north of Ireland and with Brexit um, still the great unknown out there um, where we see the impact that it is having and the potential it could have, does it concern you? Yes. Um, we are entering, I would say, a, you could say the liberal consensus that has 
been in place since the end of the Second World War is coming to an end. Um, democracy across um, developed countries is under threat. Um, the rate of globalization is outpacing people's ability to deal with its consequences. People feel angry. There's huge anger, uh, which is expressed in not just pop with the everything uh, but in uh, the yellow vests, uh, with, the, with the rise of uh, liberal democracies in, in, in Hungary and, and, and Poland, and the alt right in Germany and Marie Le Pen. Uh, to a lesser extent, Donald Trump in the United States. Uh, there's polarization and division uh, across much of the globe that wasn't there at the end of the 20th century, but has now become a hallmark of the 21st century. So, Brexit has divided uh, and polarized uh, Britain in a way that few could have foretold. That, of course, will have an impact on the way in which parties in Northern Ireland interact with each other and try to solve their difficulties. This afternoon, restored talks start between the principal parties in Northern Ireland at Stormont. I must say, I do not think these talks will amount to much until... Somehow, um, we know what's going to happen with Brexit. And we may not know that until uh, Halloween, till 1st October. So yes, things are fragile, things are fraught with danger. And uh, many of the values that we put a high priority on uh, 20 years ago um, are now under threat. Patrick, we're going to wrap up there and I want to really uh, say I appreciate the, the time. I'm looking forward to meeting you uh, when you come to Ottawa on the 18th. The movie is at uh, Beechwood at 6.30 and tickets are available through Eventbrite and you'll find the link at the Irish Film Festival Ottawa either to their Facebook page or their web page. Uh, Patrick O'Malley, Gurumila Mila Thank you. Thanks, Austin. Look forward to meeting you in, uh, in Ottawa. And again, my apologies for the sound quality during that interview. Uh, The line faded a number of times and the quality was difficult to maintain. And uh, we will be playing it again uh, during the week at 8 a.m. and 1 p.m. each day. So if you want to listen back, uh, tune in to Irish Radio Canada. You can catch it there. And it's also available as a podcast. Uh, so you can subscribe to the podcast feed if you wish and get all our podcasts come through on the feed. And we also have it in the archive section of the website. And that, of course, is www.irishradio.ca.